2: One of the world's foremost food experts, Michael Pollan, challenges us to really look at the things we so often overlook, like the food on our plates or the plants that surround us. A master of unlocking the mysteries of nature, Michael has written seven books, including five New York Times bestsellers. He's also been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. His brilliant 2006 work, The Omnivore's Dilemma, opened our eyes in a whole new way. Michael looked at four meals and asked one simple question. Where exactly does our food come from? From the elegant simplicity of food rules to the spiritual journey of his latest book, Cooked, stepping into Michael's mind, you won't look at your food the same way again. Okay, so you're a journalist, you're an author, you're a professor and activist who's, you know, now the voice when it comes to conscious eating.
1: Yeah. Did you set not, out for that? No, no. Because you no, really no. started
2: out as a nature writer, right? Yeah,
1: and I still am. I mean mm-hmm. food is very much about nature. And I think if you're if you care a lot about nature and our engagement with the natural world, sooner or later you've got to take account of agriculture because we affect nature more through our eating choices than anything else we do.
2: Is it true that your awakening, your conscious awakening, uh, happened with you in nature or in, in a the garden? garden? In the yeah. garden.
1: Yeah, from the time I was eight, I had a grandfather who was a wonderful gardener. And, uh, and he was in the produce business. And I loved hanging out and, and harvesting in particular. Um, and it was just so magic. You'd get these, these you know, ripe vegetables and fruits just came from nothing. And... Um, And so my first book was about gardening.
2: One of the things you say is that the garden is an unhappy place for the perfectionist because too much stands beyond our control here. And the only thing we can absolutely count on is eventual catastrophe. It's also a way of looking at life, you know, with a garden as metaphor.
1: Well, the, gardener, the garden is a great metaphor. Yeah. And, and one of the things it's a metaphor for is the fact you can't control everything. And that there are other living beings that you share this place with. And unless they, unless you respect what they need, you're not going to get what you want and that's a really important lesson i mean that it's it's not i me mine all the time
2: now you have now primarily given us the the rules to live by for food which are really quite simple i remember when you were on the show years yeah. ago yes
1: eat food eat
2: food not, not, not too, too much, much. mostly, mostly plants. plants yes
1: you know i spent 2 years trying to get to the bottom of what do we know about the links between diet and health Mm-hmm. what 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 does nutrition tell us? Mm-hmm. And it got, and the deeper I dug, and the more science I looked at, it got simpler and simpler and simpler. And you know, the wonder is that we complicate eating so much um, and that we obsess about good nutrients and bad. And, and you know we we fill our heads with all this biochemistry. I mean, where else in your life do you use terms like antioxidant and, omega-3s and fatty acids. And I mean, it, we feel like you must be a biochemist to eat. And of course, people have eaten for thousands of years without knowing any of that stuff.
2: Well, interesting, because on Super Soul Sunday, you know, we talk about all things spiritual and nothing actually more spiritual than the process of- Eating. Eating and cooking. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you know, when we eat, we're taking nature, we're taking the world into our bodies. That's a very profound thing. And we're changed by what we eat. And and we in turn change what we're eating, um, so it's it's our I think it's our most profound engagement with the natural world happens on our plates. It affects. Um, That's interesting.
2: Our most profound engagement with the natural world happens on it. our plates. Yeah. Is that what you mean when you say in the book that uh, food is uh, is about a series of relationships?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Food links us uh, to other people obviously, uh, and not just the people we feed, but the people who feed us, the, the farm workers and, and the people who cut up the meat in the slaughterhouses. We have a relationship with them, and we have a relationship with these other species, uh, with, with the plants that we eat, with the animals that we eat, and that's what's been invisible to us because we eat in such a thoughtless way. And, and so much of my work has been a rediscovery of those, those links, those connections.
2: Now, and the reason why it's such a spiritual connection is because three times a day, you say, which I'd never thought of it this way before either, that three times a day we get to express our values through
1: food. Yeah. What an opportunity. What a power. Um, Because what we choose to eat and what we choose not to eat is one of the ways we get to to embody what we what we care about. I mean, for example, eat, whether you eat animals or not It's a big big question for people. Um, do you want to eat in a way that that supports um, you know the environment and clean water and clean air? Do you, or it, it, do, do you care about labor and and the and, the, and the, the people who feed us and how they're treated? I mean, you have an opportunity to express that, to vote. And in a way we don't, in many other parts of our lives, we don't get that kind of power. And, yet, and that's a relatively new thing.
2: And yes, I think you you are the master of bringing this to the forefront of our consciousness to get us to start thinking about where does your food come from? Yeah. That was really the essence of the movement, was it and, not? And,
1: and that's how my work began. I was answering the simplest, dumbest question that I realized nobody knows. Where does our food come from? Um, this is, you know, something that everybody knew a hundred years ago, right? You That's could right. not write a, a selling book on such an obvious topic a hundred years ago because Not everyone, even a
2: hundred. I mean, I am- 75 I'm, I'm, old years. I'm old enough that I grew up with my grandmother on a little tiny little farm and you went out the door, you, she cultivated it. There wasn't a thing, a thing that we ate that, that she didn't plant and sow and reap. There's, there's just not a thing.
1: And that was typical. I mean, everyone either was a farm family or knew farm families yeah. or went to farms to get I longed their food. for canned
2: food. <laughs> I really did. I thought, gee, I want to be like those rich people who eat, yeah. you know, the I peas know. from the Jolly Green Giant. I don't want to just go out and And a lot em. of
1: people fled the farm,
2: and yeah. the farm
1: was hard work.
2: And interestingly, if you also talk about the fact that we now live in a world where you go to any a restaurant or you go to a hotel, there's the children's menu. Yeah. There was a time when children ate, ate. real food and yeah. ate the same food that everybody else did.
1: I think. The idea of a separate children's cuisine is such a such a bad idea for kids uh, and for parents. It means they they often get stuck. I mean, we we fell into this trap with my son. We cooked different things for him because he didn't he didn't eat very much. And the idea that yeah, kids eat you know kids' food is hamburgers, French fries, and pizza and nuggets, and that's the classic children's menu, all of which obviously are not very healthy. Um, but it it, it suddenly it, it drives a line through the the the. Dining table, You know, eating from the same pot, eating the same food puts people on the same emotional page. And if everyone at the table is eating something different, you lose a connection.
2: So is your calling, do you think, Michael, to bring more consciousness to the way we consume food? Is that your calling?
1: Yeah. I mean, you you put it very eloquently. I mean, that is basically what I'm doing. I'm not telling people how to eat. I don't have a prescription for for everyone how to eat. Because you still eat meat. I do still eat meat, I mean in a very selective way and not very much of it, um, but um, I, I don't know enough to tell you how to eat and, and I, I feel that would be arrogant, but what I'm asking of people is just think about it, be conscious, realize that it's a momentous decision, it's also an incredibly empowering decision, um, and take advantage of that. Um, and um, Why is it empowering? because you do have this opportunity to support one kind of world or another. Agriculture your to-
2: local farmers. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. You make a carbon footprint whether you want to or not. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and you can, so depending on what you value, uh, whether it's the environment or the welfare of animals or farm workers or your health and concerned about pesticides, you now have this menu of choices, which we have not had, because it used to be only 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you went to the supermarket, you know, it was all conventional food, so-called. Yeah. But now with organic and local and humane, uh, you have opportunities that you never had. So that's very empowering, I think. And and we should take advantage of it and not feel it's a burden. So you call your most recent book, I
2: love it, Cooked. And you say that this was the most spiritual book you've written. What did your time in the kitchen really do for your Yeah.
1: Soul. You know, I never thought I'd write a book about cooking. I, you know, I, I mean, I love food and I like to cook, but I never took it very seriously. But the more I was working on these food issues and, and in my advocacy work, working to reform the food system, um, which is, you know, a, a, a high priority of mine. The more I realized that so many of our problems owed to the collapse of cooking, that home cooking is not happening the way it used to. Um, we only spend 27 minutes a day on average cooking, four minutes cleaning up. We're letting corporations cook our food, and that is at the heart of many of the problems we face. The obesity epidemic, the epidemic of type two diabetes, these things are the result of letting industry cook for us, because they don't cook very well. They use way too much salt, fat, and sugar. Um, And they engineer the food to get us to eat too much of it. That's how they make more money, the more they can get you to eat. They're not interested in your satisfaction at the table, they're interested in your cravings. And they're, they're very good at engineering those. Um, so I realized if we do That's don't... why you
2: eat things and can't stop, because it's been engineered yeah. to make you not stop. Oh yeah, stop.
1: they know how to press your buttons. They're really good at it.
2: And the way they make you not stop, it's a combination of sugar, salt, and fat, right? And
1: when you layer those together, sugar, it's salt, and fat, irresistible. The potato chip is the great example. Um, oh, and I have the- a weakness for potato chips. As we do I. Do. As
2: do I, yep.
1: <laughs> and um, so I realized, you know, we have to look at this cooking piece. We're not going to fix these problems if people are, are fleeing the kitchen. And so that's what got me started. The, it was not my intent to write a book with any spiritual dimension at all. And um, I was very surprised to find myself in that place because the meal is a kind of communion. I mean, the meal is a place where we take the world, the body of the world, into our bodies, where we engage with these other creatures, and most importantly of all, where we engage with one another. I mean, think about what happens at the table. You know, whether we're eating with friends or with enemies, the kinds of conversations that happen. I mean, it's the heart of our social life.
0: I love how and you And we're say giving it up. For is there any practice? Macy's Mother's Day Gift Guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or giftless, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana devotion, eau de parfum, coach floral printed leather Cassie crossbody bag, and Le Cruset shallot Dutch oven. Shop at macy's.com slash The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts.
2: ...less selfish, any labor less alienated, any time less wasted than preparing something delicious and nourishing for people you love. So let's begin at the beginning with fire. I yeah. love that, yeah.
1: Well, that, you know, Actually, love yeah. is the, at the heart of it. It and really is. Cooking is an expression of love. And, and if you think back to your grandparents, how much of their love was expressed to you through what they made for you and that, that, that gift. I and mean, there's a gift in any act of cooking is, is a giving.
2: Now, and I love too that you experienced, um, you said, you, you know, you've never been a Zen kind of guy, but when you're cooking in the kitchen, When you're stirring the pot, just stir the pot. Pot,
1: right. And, you know, we we spend so much of our time living in the future worrying and living in the past worrying (laughs) about what we might have done wrong. And the present is inaccessible to us most of the time. And in the kitchen, you can reclaim the present if you really attend to what you're doing. And for me, it was chopping onions. I hated chopping onions. I rushed it. And, you know, so many dishes begin with a chopped onion. It's amazing. And when I learned, to say to myself this little mantra, when chopping onions, just chop onions. Don't think about anything else, let yourself enjoy it. And it's not pleasant always, right? It's painful, Um, but even chopping onions, you can absorb yourself in and and the world slips away and it's it's a great feeling, but we're rushed, you know, we're so rushed in the kitchen and I think that sense of panic about time, is part of what's driven us from the kitchen.
2: So the experience of writing Cooked and cooking did what for you?
1: Well, it made me realize that meals are, are you know, sacred occasions um, and that we should take them more seriously. And, you know, what we are as animals or as creatures are people who find meaning and, and especially find meaning in their food. And we're giving that up. We're eating at the gas station. We're, you know, we're we're eating on the run. We're eating at the fast food restaurant. You know, by ourselves. Something like forty-six percent of meals today will be eaten alone in America. We're giving up the social um, component. We're giving up the the connection with nature component. So, what I realized is that just what a rich opportunity, and it's available to all of us. You know, this is we all can get back to meals, to eating with other people. And so many good things will follow from that. I mean, for your health, if you're cooking food, you don't have to count calories. You don't have to worry about reading ingredient labels because you'll know what you're eating. And as a matter of course, people who eat home cooked food eat a healthy diet. There's a lot of research on this. The reason is you would never put as much salt in your food as a company would. You would never put as much sugar in that food. And you would never make those labor intensive but irresistible foods like french fries every day. Yes. And so if you're cooking, you're not gonna make all those labor-intensive foods. You're not gonna make dessert every night. Dessert, baking is hard. You can do that once a week maybe. And so there's something built into the nature of cooking that will take care of your health.
2: What does it take then to become a more conscious eater?
1: Well, one thing that is not
2: that necessary. is the omnivore's dilemma.
1: Really. It is. It is yeah. the omnivore's dilemma. Um, one thing that is absolutely not necessary but very helpful is cooking, because when you cook, you're forced to remember that you're working with plants and animals and mushrooms. That this is this is stuff of nature. You're putting your hands on it. You know, when you handle a cut of meat, you know, a pork shoulder or something, which I love. Um, you realize, you know, this is the muscle of an animal and it has a purpose apart from feeding me. And you realize, I'm, I don't want to waste this. This is, you know, something gave up its life for me.
2: Yes. And the, yeah, you speak about that so eloquently and cooked about there was a time when the hunters and gatherers, beginning with the hunters and gatherers, where you have a piece of meat, there was an honoring of the sacrifice that that animal yeah. had given. For you. And, yeah. that, and now we just sort of do it mindlessly.
1: It's, and you know, that was one of the more interesting discoveries I had when I was doing this research is that in both the ancient Greek tradition and the Old Testament tradition, you didn't eat meat without a priest involved or a rabbi. Um, and in ancient Greece, the, the priest, the butcher, and the cook were the same person. Um, Really? Yeah. And it was, it was and momentous because meat was very special. It was rare and involved sacrifice. And so you didn't, you didn't do it lightly. And in fact, no one else was allowed to mess around with it. The priests had to be involved. Um, and now, you know, we've come to a place where meat is very cheap. Many Americans eat it three times a day without giving a thought to it. Um, but the system that can produce meat that cheaply is the opposite of sacred. Uh, the way animals are treated? Yeah, the brutalization of the animals, the brutalization of the slaughterhouse workers. It's a system that um, takes any sense of meaning out of eating meat away. Do
2: you think then, when we eat an animal who has been treated thusly or comes from a factory where people are treated thusly, that the energy of that somehow is tr- transmitted to us?
1: I, 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 I don't know. Um, it's It's bad karma. <laughs> It has to be bad karma. You can taste the misery of animals in this very scientific sense. Uh, When animals are stressed at slaughter, which many of them are, they release all sorts of stress hormones. And that is why that meat often doesn't taste very good. So an animal that's very well taken care of will taste better. Um, So, there is a realistic sense in which you can taste that misery.
2: Have you thought of not, did you ever consider being a vegetarian? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, And in fact, when I was writing Omnivore's Dilemma, I was really grappling with this issue of, do we have a right to eat animals? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it defensible? And I'd read Peter Singer, the great ethicist who wrote a book called um, Animal Liberation. And anyone who eats meat needs to grapple with the ideas in this book. It's a very challenging book. And he said at some point, while you're thinking through this question for yourself you should not be eating meat during that period so i gave it up uh, for about six weeks and um i finally came out in favor of eating meat in a very limited way and i do think everyone at some point in their life should see what is involved in putting meat on their table i even think and this will sound a little extreme that you know in high school you know there should be a field trip where people get to kill a chicken if they want if they want to eat meat and see can you look in the eyes of this chicken and and still eat it i found i could and there's no one right answer i think it's 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 a it's a determination we all have to come to but but we're not even asked to go through that thought process anymore and and that's yeah if i'm trying to do anything in my work it's to engage people in that process
2: you're trying to at least allow people to be conscious of what it is and where what's your at food... stake? Yeah, what's at stake? What's at stake? Yeah. You're saying, look at the slaughterhouses, look at how, how your food gets to your table, whether it's vegetables or meat, animals,
1: fish, and then make a choice about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's no, there's no one right answer to these questions. They're too complicated. What's your favorite meal, Michael Pollan? <laughs> I have a lot of favorite meals. Um, one of my favorite meals, and it changes time to time, is Uh, Roast chicken with root vegetables. And it's a very simple thing to make, and I'll often make it for guests. And um, if I can get a pasture chicken, one that grew up outside, got to eat bugs and grass, these are the best-tasting chickens, and they're more common. Um, And essentially, you make a bed of, you cut up uh, carrots, parsnips, turnips, uh, anything, rutabagas, any kind of root vegetable, and make a bed for the chicken and potatoes, and set the chicken on there, turn up the, crank up the oven to like 400 degrees and roast it for 45 minutes. It's a one pot meal, it's really simple. And then you have leftovers too. So um, I love that meal, that's really great. I mean, I really like fish, salmon is another um, favorite. Another favorite day is a day when my wife and I are, are making a dinner party for friends. I mean, I really like that, you know. Starts in the morning, list of what you need to buy, go into the farmer's market or the supermarket, wherever we're going, and then we spend the afternoon cooking together. As we sit down and have our evening meal,
2: whether you're sitting with someone or they're just passing through, what do you want us to think
1: about when we sit before the next meal? Think about the wonder of what it is, whatever you're eating, um, that, you know, if it's meat that this animal um, lived and died for you. And uh, think about who grew that that broccoli or that salad and um, and the place where it grew. Imagine, imagine it growing in the earth. And um, uh, just take a moment. I mean, it's a way of saying grace, whether you you voice it or not. Um, Grace is is the institutionalization of conscious eating, right? I mean, and although a lot of us-
2: Oh, that's good. Grace is the institutionalization. It is when you stop and you have a moment to say thank you.
1: Yeah, we knew all this. <laughs> we've known we all this to a know long this, time.
2: Right? It, it's the institutionalization of conscious eating. Yeah, it's stopping
1: to make yourself aware of what this moment what is happening. This yeah. transaction, um, and you know, we we we're, we've had a great forgetting in our culture. It's very recent. We can get back. We can we can remember, and that's what I think. That's what the food movement is about, and all this conversation about food. It is about remembering this, um, the the value, the importance, the power of this relationship with our food. And and I'm very excited to see it catching on. You like to watch new stuff, right?
0: Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. And I, I'm full of hope about where we're going with food.
2: Yeah. Okay, so when you're writing, do you read other people?
1: You know, when I'm drafting, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I spend a lot of time researching before I get to write. It could be months of, um, but when I'm actually drafting and I don't want to take in any new information, I read a novel. And one of the reasons I read them is that the rhythms of prose and in general, novelists are better writers than nonfiction writers in general. I mean, I think that there are exceptions on both sides, um, definitely exceptions on both sides, but you need kind of good rhythms in your head to write well. Writing is about music. It really is. And so finding the music of a sentence, the rhythms of it, the different, if you read two sentences and one you would just kind of feel is beautiful, it's because the, the rhythms of it conform to the rhythms of the breath and the body. And um, you don't always get it right. But, so I prime, I prime my mind with good, good fiction. Um, and, and I, you know, that's where I find the, Next, great, great I rhythm. watch Bidor cook an oyster, a process
2: that involves choosing a single perfect ember and placing it beneath the plump dove-gray ovoid with a <laughs> pair of forceps, just so. Yeah, it, it is. It great mi- sense, but yeah, it's but, rhythmic. But it is rhythmic. Yeah. It is rhythmic. I never heard that before, and I've interviewed Hundreds really? of authors. Really? Never, ever heard oh, anybody say that. Prose is all about
1: music. It. Prose is all about music, just like poetry.
2: That's why it feels that way. And
1: that's why you know the good stuff. That's in why a when sentence. you're reading
2: a novel or reading. You're carried beautiful, along. You're carried sure. along.
1: Yeah. That's why. And you can tell, too. I mean, we don't do this nearly often enough, but we should all be reading aloud.
2: Oh, that's exactly. That's what happened to me on the last novel, actually, that I chose for book club, Ruby. So amazed at some of the sentences. Were so beautiful. I had to read them out yeah. loud. And
1: that's how I teach my students. I teach writing, and and whenever someone's having a trouble and their work is clunky or yeah. the sentences are too long, I make them read it aloud.
2: That's great. That's great to know that. At least to be able to articulate. Oh, that's what it is.
1: All well, these you years. know it. I mean, I'm sure you know it. In the way in the way you pick books, it's it's reflected. It's a lot of this goes on below below the level of consciousness, but it's there.
2: Yes. Yes, I remember calling Toni Morrison and telling her about having to read things over and read them oh, her, the out The music in
1: her prose is amazing. It's
2: amazing, isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah, she's got it. She's got it.
2: Now, you and I both love trees. What
1: does planting a tree or tending a garden really say about a person? Well, planting a tree is, is, a, is an incredibly optimistic act. It's, it's a statement about the future, um, that you're looking ahead. I mean, so few of us do anything beyond, you know, in business, the next quarter, mm-hmm. <laughs> in lives, you know, getting through our day, our week. Um, to plant a tree is, a, is an act of faith in the future. Uh, and it has always been thus. And, um, uh, and we don't plant nearly enough trees. I remember being in France a few years ago, and I was in a garden shop, and I always look for seeds when I go to other countries. Um, and, really? Yeah. They're interesting plants that we don't have, and yes, you are allowed to bring seeds. I was going to
2: say, can you bring them back? You can't seeds.
1: Seeds. You can bring seeds, seeds back. Seeds, yes. Okay. Just not fruits and vegetables okay. and meat. Okay. Um, and there in this store were seeds for trees, seeds, seeds for a beech tree, seeds for a you know a, really? a a redwood. Yeah, I was like, wow. Now there is an act of faith to plant a seed a tree from a seed. I heard that you once built a little
2: hut in the woods near yeah. your house. Built, yeah. Um, I still have it. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's a place to daydream and r- write and uh, and just get away from it all. And it's a it, place means the world to me.
2: Yeah. And so how important do you think, I have that over there. I call it my tea house over there, mm-hmm. little house over there. Um, how important do you think is it to have a place of contemplation, if you can? I mean, most people don't have huts in the woods. Yeah. And, tea houses, but you can, just but a space. But have
1: something like that. You, you know, you can have that in a house with other people. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have that in a little patch of your your yard where you go. I remember when I was a little kid, we lived in a tract house on Long Island, and there was this line of um, of shrubs for scythia or something. Uh, and then there was a little space after that line of shrubs where no one could see me and I could go and hang out and, in fact, planted my first crop. I, I spit out a watermelon seed and... and dug it in and it actually grew. I was four years old and wow. um, and that was my hut. And so kids can make a hut in the, in the you know, in the arch of a, a shrub. Um, I think we all need that place. It, it becomes a, um, a physical expression of solitude. What's a perfect day for you? Hmm. How do you spend your days? Well, a perfect day is outdoors for me. Um, a, a day, you know, where I'm hiking, that would be good with a really good picnic you know something i've made um and my wife and i have a ritual on our birthdays whatever day of the week it is whatever else is going on we'll take it off and do just that and we'll go up a the hike and a picnic hike and a picnic and okay and um, what's in your
2: picnic basket
1: well it's often leftovers yeah yeah what we had but it would i mean i'd be very happy with like bread and cheese um you know really good baguette or a loaf of bread i bake. as you just described that i th- i think that
2: i'm gonna do that Maybe I'll do that with Stedman or the dogs. <laughs> I go over the The Dogs mountains. would be very dogs happy with that. Yeah. Dogs would be very happy with. But whole grain bread with a great cheese. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the stinky, stinky ones, but a great cheese and some wine. I, I, I consider that one of the greatest feasts.
1: Me too. Me too. And uh, that's all I need to be happy.
2: What do you think is the world's greatest wound? Mm.
1: I guess I'd have to say human cruelty.
2: I would, I guess I would agree with that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's controversial. <laughs> I, don't
2: think, I don't think you'll get no debate from me. And what do we have to do to heal that? How do we start to heal that?
1: I think empathy. I mean, yeah. cruelty is based in a, in a, fa- a failure of empathy—the the, the inability to see things from the perspective of the person you're, um, you're being cruel to. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put up a lot of screens. You know, some are racial, some are ethnic, some are um, gendered that, that allow us to be cruel to people because we we dehumanize them. Um, so, so that's why art is so important. Art, is, art exercises our, our empathetic faculties.
2: So yeah, speaking of racial, what do you think is the root of racism
1: or prejudice? I think greed. I mean, I think when you look at the history of it, that's a very important part of it, that you needed to, um, uh, you needed to cultivate racism in order to um, justify slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think we see that sexism, too, is, you know, is often, you know, it's about one one type of person exerting power over another. But I, I really think greed is at the heart of it.
2: So we live in this polar world, darkness and light. How do how, first of all, how do you stay in the light?
1: Hmm. Curiosity. Curiosity. Um, you know, I'm a journalist, and I am motivated by questions. I'm more interested in questions than answers. I mean, answers are great when you find them, but Mm -hmm. it's questions that drive you forward. And a lot of us don't, I I think you can cultivate your sense of curiosity by, whenever you're in a situation, think, think about what, what don't you know, what are the mysteries right in front of you, Mm -hmm. and, um, and follow them. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, light is knowledge, you know, light is the knowledge that you come from, uh, from learning about things.
2: What is the quality you admire most in other human beings?
1: Empathy. Radical empathy. empathy. Radical. When I meet people I like who can really put themselves in the shoes of another, mm-hmm. and because um, it, it takes work. There's a lot working against empathy. We have our own problems. We have so many screens between us and other people. Um, our egos. Our egos. I mean, yeah. yeah, the self. I mean, just transcending the self is, is such a is, is such, <laughs> such a hard and big job, and you need to do that in order to be a civilized human being. And, um, and many of us are not civilized. And it goes back to empathy. So when I meet someone who has that quality, whether they're an activist or a novelist or, mm-hmm. s- or a filmmaker, who, who really can see the world from, uh, in, in a very different pair of shoes, I have great admiration for that.
2: Why do you think we're all here? What's the purpose of this human experience?
1: I don't know that it has a purpose. Um, it's up to us to find a purpose. We're not given a purpose. Um, we make meaning, I mean, and, um, and that's a huge responsibility. We have to figure out our purpose. Um, you know, I, I think it's preserving this world for, for people in the future. I think that's really important, and other species. And, uh, and we, we're risking all that right now. Um, so getting people to rethink their relationship to the natural world I mean, what a weird term that is. We have a relationship to the natural world. Where does that put us? Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the natural world, but we also stand outside it. And so resolving those questions, how to behave in nature, um, that drives all my work in the end. I mean, I think every writer, if you, if you scratch deeply enough, you will find that they have a set of final questions that all their work goes to. And for some people, it's power. It can be money, it can be love, it can be, um, uh, Uh, you know, any number of, you know, big topics. Mm -hmm. My final questions are all about nature.
2: Finish the sentence.
1: I believe. I believe in the possibility of change. I'm not a discouraged person. I look at some pretty awful things in my work, whether it's, you know, the way we abuse farm workers or or animals or other people, Um, and, and, and I study the... Environmental prospects before us, but whether it's a matter of knowledge or temperament, I'm very hopeful. I've seen change happen um, in, in in our lifetimes that suggests that we're not powerless to to uh, change direction. So um, that's what gets me up out of you know out of bed every morning is that you know we're going in the right direction. Do you have a favorite quote? Well, there's a quote at the end of Food Rules that I really like. Um, this is my kind of distillation of, of food wisdom. Um, after I've given you all these rules for eating, you know, don't eat anything, don't, don't buy cereals that change the color of the milk, stuff yeah. like that. There's a line at the end and it said, um, all things in moderation, this is from Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. So sometimes you have to cut loose.
2: I love that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I love that. I mean, breaking the rules is part of having rules. That's the best.
2: I'll end end there. That's perfect. Hey there, podcast listeners. I have exciting news. We're launching a brand new podcast in addition to Super Soul Conversations. It's called Oprah's Masterclass. The Masterclass podcast allows you to hear the greatest life lessons from some of the most respected and renowned actors, musicians, public figures, and athletes. In their own words, listen as Jay-Z, Justin Timberlake, Ellen DeGeneres, Shaquille O'Neal, Reba McIntyre, Dwayne Johnson, and Jane Fonda, just to name a few, share what they've learned about life and their own insights into their personal stories and challenges. I believe that there's something to be learned from every experience, and everyone can use their life as a class oprah's masterclass podcast will be available july 19th on apple podcasts subscribe now and listen free go to applepodcast.com slash oprah's masterclass i'm oprah winfrey and you've been listening to super soul conversations the podcast you can follow super soul on instagram twitter and facebook if you haven't yet go to apple podcasts and subscribe rate and review this podcast Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
0: Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new quick Caribbean escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McKrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.